Well, let me invite you now to get your Bibles and turn to Psalm 15. As you're turning there, um, I would ask for prayer for our family right now. Elia's father um, is uh, basically in hospice care at home. And over the past four days or so, we've been um, been over there and just uh, she and um, Sarah Lopes, her sister, have been just working hard to attend and to care for him along with hospice care and the rest of the siblings. Um, so it's been a it's been a tiring time, um, but pray for um, her father. Um, he's ready to go. Everyone's basically said their goodbyes, so to speak, and we just want him to be comfortable as the Lord takes him home. And uh, thank you for those that were already aware and were praying for us during that time. Well, let's stand together. Psalm 15, Psalm 15, and let's read this together. A Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being the recipients, Lord, of your word, that we would know you, we would Know ourselves as you revealed us, Lord. And we know, Lord, how we can be reconciled to you through what your son Jesus Christ has done for us by going to the cross and dying in our place, and paying for our sins. So this morning, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? Lord, what we are not, would you make us? And Lord, allow me as your messenger to simply proclaim your truth so that your people can be more conformed to your son, Jesus Christ. And those who do not know you, Lord, would see the beauty and the glory and the majesty of the gospel and your son, Jesus Christ, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, if you were here last week, you remember that we were walking through uh, Psalm 3. And Psalm 3 Uh, we considered the hope that a believer has when the pressures of the world are seeking to squeeze them into its mold. And today we want to ask a different question, but really relating to the same question, same situation. We want to consider what kind of person has God called me to be when the sinful, wicked world is seeking to squeeze me into its mold? That's a really important question, isn't it? Because as we talked about, it's out there. It's, it's that pressure is there. But God still calls us to act and behave in a certain way that would reflect who we truly are in Christ. So the psalm doesn't itself make that claim. But the context of the psalm helps to nudge us and push the psalm in that direction. Let's look a little bit at the context, just real briefly. Psalm 9, Psalm 9. This psalm talks about God's dealing uh, with David's enemies, those whom he calls the wicked and the nations. That would be verses 15 and 17. They will sink into the pit they have made. They will catch their foot in the net they, they hid. They will be snared in the work of their own hands. And verse 17 says, The wicked shall return to Sheol, or the grave, all the nations that forget God. So here we have this idea of the wicked and the nations being identified as those that are putting pressure on David and Israel. Psalm 10, this psalm talks about the arrogance of the wicked. Verse 2, they pursue the poor. Verse 3, they are boastful, renouncing the Lord. Verse 4, they are full of pride, saying, there is no God. Verse uh, Psalm 11, The psalm is about finding refuge in God because of the pursuit 
of the wicked. Right? You see this theme. You see this, this pressure. You see this context. Uh, Psalm 12. In the Psalm, David looks around and he sees the, the faithful have vanished. And it's only the wicked who remain. In Psalm 13, David asks, how long, O Lord? How long? Again, in the context of wickedness. And then in Psalm 14, David begins the psalm with these words. The fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. And see, from when we look at Psalm 14, it's about the person who dismisses and rejects the God of the Bible. They may still believe in a God of their own making. They might even articulate that with some biblical words. But they've rejected the God of the Bible. In Psalm 15, it is about the person who desires and embraces the God of the Bible. He sees that there is nothing more important than enjoying fellowship with God. So this psalm is settled right in this context that is saying, this is how I want you to live. This is what is important for you as a child of God in the context then of wickedness. And again, in this context, in the face of such wickedness, David is asking the question about a person's heart. Who has a heart for God? What does a true worshiper look like? What characteristics of the, uh, uh, the characterizes the heart of a true follower of Christ? So here, here's my proposition. Here is how I want to tie it all together. What we have here in the psalm is a call to seriously contemplate the orientation of your heart for God. And it's set in this context where wickedness is prevailing. And there's great pressure on the people of God. And in the face of a world full of wicked people and foolish people who reject God in their hearts, we're called not to speak, to think, or to behave in kind, but to be people whose hearts are oriented to God. Now, friends, it's so easy for us. When we encounter those who are, I might want to say, the wicked, the arrogant wicked of this world, and they treat Christians and Christian ethics with mockery and disdain. It's so easy for us to allow our emotions to rise and to treat them in kind. You've probably done that. You're probably guilty of that. You've probably at times recognized it and had to suppress things in your heart. They snark at you and make mocking comments, and you're tempted to respond to them in the same way, with the same disrespect. They say that you're weak and ignorant because you're believing in God. He's just a crutch, they say. And you're tempted to fire back, slapping them with some biblical passage of Scripture. Remember, your anger will not bring about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, your mockery will not promote the grace of God. Remember, your snide remarks and snarky responses are not a reflection of godly and effective evangelism. Friends, no. We are called to maintain a godly character that is born out of the gospel and is evidence that our heart is rightly oriented to God. Now, friends, this is, this is the dilemma, isn't it? If this is true for us, then the world is going to use that against us. And they're going to pick anything that you do that might be simple. Say, ah, see, see, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. And guess what? We are. (laughs) So we acknowledge it. But we're hypocrites that know we're hypocrites. And we're quick, should be quick to seek forgiveness and restoration and be honest about the way we suffer and the way we fail in our desire to honor God. But friends, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But if you say in your heart, there is a God, he is sovereign and worthy to be praised, then you are called to back up that claim and live a life that reflects that conviction. Now, as we look through the psalm, it really breaks down to three sections. There's a question, there's an answer, and there's a promise. So let's jump in right now and look at the serious question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? 
So the psalm begins with a serious question. It's not a frivolous question. It's not an irrelevant question. It's a question that probes the heart of everyone who reads this psalm. And notice that this question is really asked twice, but in two different ways. First, it's, it's written, it's asked twice for poetic reasons. There is, there is, there's a way that, that poetry works, and you have these couplets. The first line is often repeated in a different way, and the second line, as we have that, notice it says, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? It's, these are talking about the same thing. But there's also a physical reason why this is listed twice, because David, when he was king, and when he really came and, and, and established his rule in Jerusalem, there were two locations where God met with his people. Because the tent or the tabernacle was actually in Gibeon, which is about eight to ten miles away from Jerusalem at that point in time. And the temple had been established in Jerusalem. So this is actually responding to the, the actual context that we have here uh, when, when David is writing this psalm. So you have the tabernacle and you have the, you have the temple. These were structures that God established that Israel should build so that he could meet with his people. And now the question is, who is it that can meet with me there? So this question is about intimacy. It's about communion. It's about fellowship with God. And we must be careful not to jump to application assuming that the psalm is talking about a person's conversion, because it's not. This is talking about, about a person's worship. This is talking about the people of God seeking to worship God in such a way that they are having fellowship and intimacy with him. Here are these people in the context of the ungodly seeking to live their lives in such a way where they are fellowshipping, interacting, and having intimacy with God. So what should your life look like as you seek to fellowship with God? Here's a person who longs for friendship, longs for intimacy with God that is expressed in worship. Now, throughout history, there's been a, a variety of answers. Christopher Ash and his uh, short commentary on this just highlighted a couple of things that I thought was really helpful because in society, uh, the answers come in a number of different ways. But here's four to think through. First of all, there's religion. People seek to answer this question. How can I have intimacy with God? They say it's, it's religion. You just go through the ceremonies. You go through the formalities. You follow these list of rules and God will accept you. We call that legalism. But many people are satisfied with that. Many people are saying, well, I'm a religious. I go to church. I give. God is not saying ceremony or keeping rules is the means by which we have intimacy with him. Secondly, there's ethnicity. You're like, huh, how does that fit? Because in the Old Testament, and even as you get into the New Testament, it becomes more of an issue to be a Jew, to be an actual descendant of Abraham was considered to be superior. And this is one of the things that the Apostle Paul had to correct in the minds of not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles to say, look, no, no, no. In Christ, we are one man. The Jews are not somehow superior to the Gentiles. So the ethnic question is really not something that should be considered. Now, even today, we have this going on in various groups. They think that the true church, they are the true church in particular because of their ethnic connection to historic Israel. I'll just highlight a couple of them. British Israelism. You may never have heard of that before. But there's a belief that, that those in England are actually the descendants of the Jews. And so they have this connection. Then we have black Hebrew Israelites. This is another movement. You may have seen it before, but they're like, no, we are actual descendants of Abraham. Therefore, we have far more right than anyone else. There was a lot of that going on with Nazism. We are the chosen race. Yeah, it's all rooted back to these same kind of ideas. Even American nationalism can fall into this category, especially when it claims that America is God's chosen country. 
And by the way, there have been many other countries throughout the history of the world that have said, we are God's chosen country. Then there's education. Maybe even in the New Testament. This actually came up, but maybe not so much in an educational way, but this idea of knowledge. The Gnostics were the ones that promoted this idea of knowledge. We have this special knowledge. And because we have this special knowledge, we now have access. And the last one here is experience. On the basis of one's experience, you can be accepted by God. So you, if you don't have this somehow mystical experience, then you really, you really can't get there. You have to go through this mystical experience that actually to see him. Now, friends, these are just some of the ways that, that the, the world being spiritual seeks to somehow interact with the God of their imagination. That is not what is going on in this text. What's going on in this text is much more real and practical. So we now move to the soul-searching answer to the question. And this answer given by the psalm is extremely penetrating and soul-searching, but it's an answer that is not exhaustive, but illustrative. In fact, we find some of these statements or, or, or common questions like this in a couple of other texts. They're not going to be on your screen, but just listen. Psalm 24 Verses 3 and 4 says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Sounds pretty similar, doesn't it? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. It's a good answer. Isaiah 33, 14 through 17. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it begins, Who among you can dwell in the cons- with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of of oppressions, who shakes his hand, lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. Again, great answers. But you take all of these passages together. They're not exhaustive. In fact, I think it's wonderful that God doesn't give us exhaustive lists. Why? Because if we have an exhaustive list, then we tend to become legalists that simply want to check off a box and satisfy the list rather than have intimacy with him. So we must be careful that we we read, what we read next doesn't degenerate into a code book for approaching God that bears fruit in legalism. These illustrations and examples are about what flows out of the heart. Jesus summarizes the whole law, doesn't he? When he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And as the Psalms have already indicated, the person who can dwell with God is the righteous man of Psalm 1. He delights in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. But now, Psalm 15, here we are given a more developed picture of the righteous man. And it's divided into two sections. First section is his general character. And then the second section really are specific examples or illustrations of the attitudes and the behaviors of this person who has this general character. So we're we're given ultimately five penetrating, soul-searching, examination, or evaluation illustrations for us to kind of use as a mirror to test our own walk with God. All right? So let's jump in here, and let's put the mirror of God's word up to each one of us. Verse 2, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. These are all general statements. They all describe a person's bent a person's tendency in their heart. This is the way this person typically functions because they're a child of God. And David uses the expression, the heart, to describe that arena uh, of this bent or these tendencies. Now, I like to use the, the, the analogy of, uh, of a weather vane to really describe what's going on here. That you, as a child of God, who, who, who wants to, to honor the Lord, who wants to, to live for his glory, have a weather vane set pointing to God. 
You're anchored in that. Now, the winds may blow, things might happen, but that weather vane is always just fighting to make sure that it's pointing in the right direction. You might want to add to that analogy, the, you know, maybe, maybe a compass and a weather vane together, right? Because it's always trying to find that true north. It's always kind of defaulting in that direction. This is the heart of the believer. It wants to do what God desires. It wants to honor God. And so whatever happens, whatever difficulties and trials or winds of culture blow, it's always trying to make sure it's pointing true north to God. Now, what we need to consider First, is that Psalm 15, as I've already mentioned, is a contrast to what's been going on in the previous Psalms. The previous Psalms have been talking about the growing presence of the ungodly and the wicked. And the question now is this, how can we distinguish between the godly person, the one whose heart is oriented to God, from the ungodly person? Well, the ungodly say, there is God, but I don't care about it. They say, all right, there is God, but he isn't going to rule my life. They say, there is God, but he certainly isn't the God of the Bible. Or they say, there is no God. Whereas the the godly man or woman is saying, there is God, and I care about what he says and what he thinks. There is a God, and I want to submit myself to his will. There is a God, and he is the God revealed in Scripture. So now David begins his description of this godly worshiper by describing his or her character in three ways. Their walk, their behavior, and their speech. In their walk, we're told that they walk blamelessly. That doesn't mean that they're sinless. This word blameless doesn't mean a person is perfect. It just means that they are without blame. So even if they do sin, they're quick to seek restoration. They're quick to acknowledge their their, their sinful tendencies. And and therefore, they're the kind of person you're like, hey, you know, I appreciate that because you acknowledge when you fall and you want to make things right and you're quick to do that. So this person is is wholehearted in his pursuit of covenant loyalty. So this person clearly has his weather vane pointed in the right direction. And as I said, he may sin, but the orientation of his heart is revealed because he is quick to repent and to forgive and make things right. Then we look at their behavior. He does what is right. He actively seeks to do what is right. He is a righteous person. He wants to do God's things, what God says. He is mindful to follow Christ's instructions to care for others or to do things that would truly further the kingdom of God. And then his speech, unlike the fool who says in his heart, there is no God, this person speaks in his heart, but tells the truth. I mean, notice what it says there, right? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart. We talked about that last week, didn't we? We talked about preaching the gospel to yourself. That's what this person's doing. They're speaking the truth in their heart. In other words, in his thinking, in his musing, he's looking to honor and prioritize God's truth. The filters in his thinking are solidly biblical. Now, again, these are, these are general statements about the orientation of a person's heart. And they're actively and continually present in this person. They drive the thoughts and the motives and the choices and the behavior of his heart. Are these general descriptions, descriptions of your heart? Could you say this about yourself? That's one of the purposes of the psalm is to ask that question. I mean, who, who can have that intimacy with, with the Lord? Who can sojourn in his head? Who can dwell in that holy hill where the temple is? Do you have the kind of character? Is, is your heart the kind of heart that, that reflects what's being said here? So that's the general character. Let's look secondly now at the worshiper's attitudes and behavior. You go from the general to the more specific with some specific illustrations. Notice that, that all of these kind of begin with the word who or whom. So they're pretty, they're laid out pretty clearly. You can see what they are. First of all, I'm, I'm, they're all beginning with the letter C just to help us remember. But first of all, evaluate your conversations, 
your conversation. Verse 3, who does not slander with his tongue and does not that does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend. These three statements together challenge the reader of the psalm or the one singing the psalm to evaluate their conversations, their interactions with others. It's not just in their speech, but the intent even behind their speech. And we go from slander to do evil to take up reproach. Again, there's this kind of a a movement here from general to specific. There's kind of a general statement about your interaction with mankind, then your neighbor, then your friend. Let's look at each one briefly. This person does not slander with his tongue. Slander has the idea of a person who tends to go around watching and looking and listening so that he can speak about people to their detriment. They're looking to find something wrong or a way that they can somehow make you look bad. And friends, in today's culture, that is acceptable. All you have to do is go online, listen to the news, listen to what different people say about other people. They, if, if, if they don't like your ideology, they will say Whatever they need to say, they'll take a a truth and they'll twist that truth to somehow discredit you so that they can boost up their ideology. And if you're damaged in the process, but their ideology is promoted, guess what? It's okay. Not so the one who has a heart for God. The person who has a heart for God does not respond in kind. This worshiper will not do this. Secondly, not only he does no, uh, doesn't slander, but no evil uh, to his neighbor. Unlike the wicked person who has no qualms about speaking badly and hurting others with their words, the true worshiper of God is mindful to not get sucked into the fray. They're careful and considerate. They're wise, and they have their guard up to treat with respect those who may be speaking badly toward them. You can speak the truth in a respectful manner. And just because the ungodly don't care about that does not mean then that we should abandon our restraint and treat them in kind. And quite frankly, they love to undermine those who are godly and have them behave badly. Why? Because then they can use it against them. This person does not take up a reproach against his friend. The idea of reproach here is the idea of ridicule and mockery and derision. 2 Samuel 17, I think, is a really good example. Goliath comes out, and he is deriding Israel. It's like five or six times in the story that he's coming out, and he is mocking, and he's scorning. This person, however, knows how to control his tongue. But even more than that... When he hears reproach against someone, he does not allow himself to get caught up in it. He doesn't listen to or join in with the ridicule, the mockery, and the derision against that person. But notice here that the reproach is against his friend. I mean, certainly we don't want to be reproaching those who are ungodly, but absolutely, this shouldn't be happening between brothers and sisters in Christ. So friends, we as Christians already have too many reproaches against us from the world to be then adding to that the pressure of reproaching one another. We're not just to keep the garbage from going out, but we're also to keep the garbage from coming in. We don't listen to the things that the world says and join in with the reproach. So that's the first one. Evaluate your conversation. Now, friends, I just want you to take a moment to think over 2020, a little bit of 2021, but a lot of things that have happened in our world that have stirred people up and even stirred you up if you're a child of God. The election year, the rise of the BLM protests, 
the overreaching abuses of our government, especially in particular toward the church, not necessarily all in California, but in Canada and different places. Let me ask you a question. Did you slander anyone during that time? Did you wish evil on anyone during that time? Did you mock or ridicule someone with your words? What do you think would be God's opinion of how you communicated with or about others during that time? Just because your fellow Christians were doing it doesn't mean that it was right. Did you get caught up with the politically charged conflict blowing through our country? Did you treat someone with disrespect because they had a different opinion about masks or sheltering in place or social distancing or even now the vaccines? Did your words and behavior show that you are more like the culture or that you're more like Christ? I think there's many in the church would look back and say, yeah, I blew it. I got sucked in. And I responded in kind. Now, I didn't say here that it was wrong to have a differing opinion. I'm emphasizing here, it's, it's how you're treating one another with your words. The person who can sojourn in the tent or dwell in God's holy hill is a person who is not swept away in his conversations to act and to behave like the world. No, he's a person who stands above the world because he or she is not willing to treat others disrespectfully or behave badly to those who are opposed to God. Now, if you look in Scripture, we see the example of Christ who did not reproach those who came mocking him, who were spewing things out, deriding him. The apostles, even when they stood before kings, did not mock those leaders, but they took opportunity to to communicate the truth of the gospel to those people. Even Jesus, when he was confronting the religious leadership, was not mocking them and scorning them, but he was very pointed in his questions and his comments to reveal the error of their way. That's totally different. So evaluate your conversations, friend. Do you have a wholesomeness? In your speech. Secondly, evaluate your companions in whose eyes, it says in verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. You've probably heard the proverb, a man or woman is known by the company he or she keeps. Now, of course, it's a general principle, and you have to define it based on what you mean by company, right? Because you could take this, you know, really literally and say, a Christian, oh, you talk to an unbeliever, therefore you're, you know. No. I mean, the, the point here is this is where they, they want to go, right? This is Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsels of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scorn. I mean, you're planting yourself in that realm. But it says here, in whose eyes. In other words, this worshiper looks over mankind and says, there's some people to avoid and there's some people to respect and listen to, and join up with, and learn from. So we have these vile people that are that this person despises. Now, this is not hatred toward a person or a particular group of people. The idea here is this person is not attracted to this kind of person because of the way that they live or because of the, the things that they're committed to. Who's a vile person? One who's rejected by God and one who rejects God. Therefore, contrary to the world's perceived ideologies, the worshiper has preferences, makes distinctions that reflect his love for God and God's people. He or she is not caught up with or in awe of the ungodly. They're not their heroes, their role models, their mentors. The viewpoints of the ungodly are not what motivates them. The acceptance and the popularity of the ungodly is not a priority to them. Now, society might think that just because a guy can throw a ball through a net, he's worth listening to. 
Or just because he can kick a soccer ball into a net, somehow he's got some wisdom. Or just because he can be on the screen and act a part that that person actually has some authority. And society loves to give actors and journalists and musicians and politicians a platform to voice their opinions. Why? Because more often than not, those opinions conform to the world's ideologies, and they love it. But the true worshiper is someone who can see through all that. They despise what the world has to offer. They despise that vile person. Now, certainly, we can appreciate their skills. Man, that person can really throw a basketball. Man, that person's a really good actor. But their skills on the court or their skills behind a a camera do not equate to, this is a person that should be my role model. That doesn't mean that we shun the ungodly. Of course not. No, we're called to be salt and light to those who don't know God. But we are talking here about the attitude of the heart. This person isn't secretly wishing that they could follow the example of the ungodly. They're kind of conforming to the religious system that they're in, but, oh, in their heart, they really want what the world has to offer. No, they see the ungodly through the lens of God's revealed word, and they are to be pitied. For they see them as in bondage to sin. And unless they bow the knee to the king of kings, they will suffer in the flames of hell for eternity. They've rejected God. And that comes with serious consequences. That comes from just having a worldview that understands the reality of who these people are and their end. It's a sad reality, friends. But instead, this person honors those who fear the Lord. Rather than be attracted to a vile person, he or she is attracted to the company of those who fear the Lord. The true worshiper sets before his mind positive, godly examples and seeks to follow them. This person pursues pastors and teachers who will faithfully bring the word of God to them. This person pursues the lives of older people who have an established track record of getting godliness right. Saying, I want to emulate that. I want to be like that. I want to respect that. This person seeks to find godly, like-minded brothers and sisters that will continue to sharpen them to be more and more like Jesus Christ. This person seeks to find a faithful church where they can serve and they can grow. You see, they honor those who fear the Lord. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, Pastor Rod, aren't you saying that we should be, you know, have discrimination? And the answer is yes and no. We are called in Scripture to discriminate. Nothing wrong with being a person who discriminates. This is bad. This is good. And we need to make sure that we're being discerning with that, not sinning in discrimination, but being discerning, being wise. I mean, Dale Davis says it well. He says, if one is to keep what is holy from dogs and pearls from hogs, then one must be able to identify who the dogs and the hogs are. But somehow our world has convinced us that we can't make those kind of distinctions. And we're not to make those distinctions based on things that are just unbiblical, like, you know, color of a person's skin, where they live, what country they're from. Those are vile, sinful distinctions. We're talking here about ungodliness versus godliness. And you don't want to join in with the ungodly ideas, but you want to minister to people who don't know the Lord. But you want to affix yourself to people who are pursuing the Lord with their lives. That's discrimination in the right way. So yes, we are to discriminate. No, we're not to discriminate sinfully. We're called to stand with and be loyal to those who fear the Lord. Third, evaluate your commitments. Your commitments. Here we have just a short little statement. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. This worshiper is marked by their integrity. His or her commitments 
mean something. The idea here is that the person will keep their word, even if it is a disadvantage to them, even if it becomes inconvenient for them, or they find a better deal. I mean, this, this applies to marriage. You stood before one another, and you said, I do, and you spoke your vows before God and before these people, and then you get home, maybe after about six months, you realize he's always leaving his underwear on the floor. Or, you know, she's not as good a cook as I thought she was going to be. Or you could go, the list goes on. You don't say, you know what, I I think I want to kind of back out of this because I'm still young. I still have time. I can find someone. Have fun with that. Because we all have flaws. The, The point here is that, you know what, we honor our commitments. We say, God is going to work through the commitments I have made for his glory. And those wonderful things that make us different or even bring conflict in our relationships as husband and wife are the means by which God grows us to love one another more and to minister to one another more. This is true also in the workplace. In your business dealings, do you keep your contracts? Do you honor your promise? Do you cut corners? Several years ago, Um, In our home, we had these three or four, I can't remember how many there were, but they were really tall juniper trees. And they were diseased, and they were were so tall, we were worried they would would fall on our house if the winds came or something like that. So I sought a number of uh, um, tree fellers to come out and give me a bid and that kind of stuff. And so the guy came and says, I'll I'll do it for $400, send my crew in, we'll do it. It shouldn't be that big of a deal. Okay, so he came in, sent his crew there. Um, a little later in the day after his crew had been there and cutting it down, um, he came over to inspect what they did. And we're standing on my deck and we're looking out there and we're chit-chatting a little bit. And he kind of turns to me and says, you know, this has taken a lot longer than I thought. This wasn't a $400 job. This is more like a six or $700 job. And I was like, oh, man. And in my heart, I'm just like, you know, I, I, I want to make sure I'm giving a fair price to a, to a fair job. Does that make sense? And I said, you know what, if I need to give you another $200 to, to, to cover that, that's fine. He said, no, absolutely not. He says, I told you 400 and that's, that's my word. <laughs> he was willing to suffer to make sure he was a person of integrity. And he said, I just want to make sure I can pay my workers. <laughs> so he was suffering, but he wanted to make sure his workers were taken care of. Now, The point here that I'm trying to illustrate is this, is that there are times when things happen in in our lives where we might say, oh, I have another opportunity here, or I could get something done cheaper. And so we break our word rather than maintain our integrity. This person is willing to suffer loss for the sake of integrity. Number four, evaluate your cash. Evaluate your cash who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. It's often said you can tell much about a person by looking at their bank ledger. In other words, what we do with our money can often be a window to our hearts. I just think about that. If someone came and opened up your bank ledger or clicked on your account, however you want to look at it, what would they see? What would it tell them? What habits of behavior in life would be revealed by that? Here we have two extreme illustrations. We have a, on one side we have extortion, on the other side we have bribery. Extortion is taking advantage of a person by lending money, in this case, with interest. And the emphasis here is an exorbitant amount of interest, a ridiculous amount of interest. Something like what's happening in our society today with school loans. There's no reason they should be charging 7, 8, 9% on a school loan, except it's easy money. If you really want to help people with their school loans, drop the interest rate. There's a reasonableness to getting a loan, right? This is not some kind of a, of a statement here saying it's wrong for a bank to actually have interest on a loan, but there's a point in which it becomes ridiculous, and there's a point in which it becomes bondage, and those that are taking the loans now ultimately become the slaves of the people that are offering those loans. 
we have an incredible example of that in Nehemiah chapter 5. We won't get into the whole story. They're building the walls. And the people of God, the rich people of God, see the opportunity. They offer loans with high interest. And the people realize we don't have the resources to pay off these loans. And these are their own people. It's a sad reality, friends. So evaluate your cash in particular. Are you the kind of person that takes advantage of other people by lending them money with interest? You might not be a bank necessarily, but is there some way in which that attitude is true? How about bribery? Taking advantage of a person who is innocent by being willing to take a bribe. The implication is that this person is either taking money or either to be quiet or to give a false testimony. Either way, taking a bribe is a stand against true justice. It's not just about cash, but cash is the lure. And we must remember that bribes don't always come in the form of cash. A bribe could be the promise of a promotion at work. It could be the promise of a special treatment in some way, shape, or form. It could be the the assurance of a future decision. It might be a willingness to look away at a crime that you may be committing. It might be the promise of a stimulus check or the canceling of school debts. These are all forms of bribes. The point here, however, is that the true worship is not willing to get sucked into that. Why? Because they are trustworthy in their character. Now, friends, are you generous with your money? Do you use it to invest in the kingdom of God? When you know that a brother or sister is in need, are you quick to pray about it and with wisdom help them out financially? And when you do give your money to help others, are you doing it for selfish purposes or for the glory of God? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says as he writes to Timothy, his son in the faith, who's now ministering in the city of Ephesus, and he's talking to Timothy about what he should say to those who are rich. Listen to what he says. This is 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, that means arrogant, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The rich can be so consumed with money that they're not even willing to help those around them. They're more concerned about money than they are about people. Now, here we have five four categories, actually five categories if you take the first one, that are supposed to be mirrors for us to look at. Let's just briefly highlight them all. Each of them is supposed to be a picture of the virtues God wants to see in all of his children. And it's a call for each of us to do some penetrating, soul-searching evaluation of our hearts. So look at the list and just think of it even if you're taking notes. When you look at the general character, what do you see? Is your weather vane pointed toward God and his kingdom? When you look at your conversations, what do you see? Are you loose with your tongue? Is there some tinge of evil toward others? Have you been so affected by the culture that you easily mock and ridicule those who are opposed to God? When you consider your companions, what do you see? Are you drawn away and enticed by the heroes and role models of this world that are held up in front of you? Or are you attracted to those who are seeking to live godly lives to fear the Lord? When you consider your commitments, what do you find? Do you keep your word? Are you willing to keep your word even if it means that you'll lose something somehow? When you look at your cash, what's revealed? Do you put put people before money or money before people? Friends, all of this goes back to the heart. And you're saying, God exists, God has spoken, and he compels me to live my life in such a way to please him. If that is true, then he says, you can sojourn in my tent, you can dwell in my temple, but here comes the promise. He adds, he who does these things 
will never be moved. You will be anchored to God. So the question is about dwelling with God, about intimacy with God, and that's answered. Here's a way you can kind of give a litmus test and kind of see whether or not you're this true worshiper or not. But the promise is you will not be moved. You will not be shaken. You're going to be anchored to God. Now, I want to bring this together now with some closing thoughts. I have four of them. Four final truths that I think need to be given to round things out. To have a heart for God is, first of all, counter-cultural. It is no surprise that this psalm given to us by God's design is settled in the context in which it is in, where ungodly people are pressuring godly people to conform to their wishes. The person who fellowships with intimacy with God is not captivated by the world and all the world loves. No, he is always swimming desperately against the current of society. Do you feel that? That's true in his speech. That's true in his loyalties. That's true in his integrity. It's true in his trustworthiness. The person who has a heart for God has learned to view this world through the lens of God's word. And friends, it runs contrary to the ideologies of the world. You and I, because we're recreated in Christ, are going in the opposite direction. We are counter-cultural. I don't mean that in a, sense, in a revolutionary sense. We're like, we're going after them. We're just like, the nature of what it means to be a follower of Christ means you're going to be running against ungodliness. And those who are ungodly are not going to like things that you do, things that you say, ways in which you respond to this world's issues. It's countercultural, And yet, God has called us in the midst of this to be salt and light. <laughs> and therefore, our response, our attitude, our behavior, our interaction with the world cannot be one of anger, but must be one of grace. Because we see what the true issues really are. So not only is it countercultural, and I'm going to, the, the next four are expressions that we often say that I think kind of get muddled together. So hear me out with this. Secondly, it's God-oriented. The heart of God is God-oriented. The heart of a true worshiper consistently seeks to glorify and please God. He's saying in his heart, what I choose to do, how I think, how I behave, must be in conformity to what God wants. He matters. And so he fights away his sinful desires so that he can give his life for God's glory and to live his life according to his will. To that end, he wants to know more about God. To that end, he, he's hungry to spend time in his word. He loves to talk about what he's learning. He loves to spend time with God's family. And at the end of the day, he gives praise to God, not himself. He's God-oriented. A person who has a heart for God, third, is Christ-centered. See, one of the struggles of reading and studying a psalm like Psalm 15 is that we can have a Proverbs 31 response to it. Now, all of you ladies know what I'm talking about. You read Psalm 31, which is a beautiful, wonderful picture of the virtuous woman and studying and learning about that virtuous woman is a, is a wonderful reality, but I'm sure that as a woman, when you're reading Proverbs 31, you read it and you groan. Why? Because you can't measure up. You know you can't be that person in your own strength. And friends, that's what we need to understand as we've gone through. Hopefully, you've probably been sitting there saying, Pastor Rod, there's no way I can do all these things that are listed in here. That is the point. You can't. When we can study these five areas David gives us and rightly use them as mirrors to reflect the truth of our hearts and only to find that we fall short. And friends, the truth is we all fall short. There's not one person in this room that can say, you know what, based on what you said, Pastor Rod, I can boldly come into the presence of God. 
If you say you can't, I want to talk to you because you have something that, anyway, there's only one who can meet the standard perfectly, and that is Christ. Now, friends, I'm not pulling this out of a hat. As we've gone through the book of Exodus, we've seen that even Moses, as he goes in, there is a picture of the greater one, Jesus, who is the mediator, the only one that can stand between us and the Father. Only he is qualified. His weather vane is always pointed to the will of the Father. His speech, his loyalty, his integrity, his trustworthiness are always pure and true. And as such, he is the only mediator who can sojourn into God's uh, tent or dwell in God's temple because he is the only one who is qualified to do so. And the only reason you or I can sojourn into God's tent or dwell in God's temple, the only reason that we can have intimate fellowship with the God is because we don't come in our own righteousness. We are, we repent and we seek forgiveness and we are restored uh, at our conversion. At that moment, we are clothed with an alien righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. And we enter then Not by virtue of our own merit, we enter into the presence of God because of the holiness of Christ, because of his righteousness. Without Christ clothing us with his holy righteousness, garments, we would not be able to approach God. So to have a heart for God means that Christ is at the center, not us. Now, these these are some things that we have to wrap our minds around because it's so easy to jump from Psalm 15 straight to us and think, oh, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. Yeah, that's me. That's me. And I'm looking at us. I'm studying this week. I'm like, nope. Nope. Fail. Bad. Right? Now, having said that, countercultural, God-centered, Christ-centered, God-oriented, Christ-centered, the last one is gospel-driven. Why is that important? Because although we can't measure up, only Christ can. What we have read here are all areas that God wants us to grow in, in our discipleship. He wants us to grow to become more and more mature in our walk with him. So, in other words, what we read here and what we evaluate in Psalm 15 are to be for us godly aspirations. These are the standards which we cannot reach, but they are standards that we are to shoot for. We don't trust in our accomplishment of them. We trust in what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. See, what one of the confusions that we have, especially if we're coming from like a Catholic context where, where we measure our walk with God based on what we have done and not wholly and completely based on what Christ has done, is we have a tendency to feel like we have to work then toward this conversion, toward the salvation. Oh, in Christ, friends, we are free. We are at liberty. Christ has already done what needs to be done. But then he also, on the back end of that, says, if you're one of my children, this is what you shoot for. This is what you strive for. You're not going to reach there because you're not Christ. But you are to pursue being more and more like Christ. This is what we call progressive sanctification, being what God has called you to be. Now, friends, when we live and we have intimacy with God because of Christ and through the gospel, it's because of Christ and the intimacy that we, we have with God that we can come and we can be in fellowship and in intimacy with him. It's the gospel that drives us toward this intimacy with God. Yet we know that such intimacy can only happen because of Christ. So friends, just in summary, to have a heart for God means that you're constantly striving against sin and pursuing being more and more like Christ. And the practical application for us is this. In the face of an ungodly society, we don't cave in. We pursue our walk with God. 
And when we pursue our walk with God, things that will happen are we will act and behave and think and interact with people differently. We're not reacting to what's happening in the world. We're, we're acting out of our relationship with God. And so what we choose to do, what we choose to think, what we, how we choose to respond is going to be rooted in the truth of the gospel. It's going to be rooted in what Christ has done. It's going to be rooted in what pleases the Father. But it will also be countercultural. God has called us to a new and living way. The world may not understand it. Our desire is that they do through our lives, through our witness, through our testimony, through our pursuit to glorify him. Let's try our best with God's help through the gospel to continue pursuing that for his glory. Lord, help us today. Help us, Lord, to realize that our hope is found in you. And yet, Lord, you've called us to live and act and to behave in a way that reflects, Lord, these characteristics that you've given us. They are not irrelevant, Lord. They are examples for us, Lord. So help us. Help us to think about what drives our heart. Help us to think about how we, we are to, to use our, our, our mouths and interact with what people say. Help us, Lord, to, to think through who we value, Lord, who we want to model our lives after, who, who we think should be honored in this world. Help us, Lord, to evaluate our integrity, our commitments. And Lord, help us to allow even the use of, of our money to be a test for us to see whether or not our, our weather vane is pointed in the right direction. Lord, ultimately, may we rest in the fact that our performance in these areas is not the means of our salvation. But, Lord, it is the pursuit that you've called us to because your son, Jesus Christ, has already accomplished what needs to be accomplished. Thank you, Lord, for your wonderful reality of your gospel. And, Lord, even now, as we take time to celebrate that through the sharing of the Lord's Supper, May we be mindful of the fact that we find rest in the gospel. We're no longer striving somehow to reach that pinnacle of acceptance. Always failing, Lord. We, we find our acceptance because of what Christ Jesus has done on our behalf. Giving of himself, shedding his blood. Lord, you are worthy to be praised. And Lord, we praise you today in your precious name. Amen.